you have a look at that map up on the screen, that's the Middle East between 1949 and 1967. Usually in church when we're looking at maps of Israel, we're, we're looking at, at what, what it was back in Old Testament times. But Israel is the white country there between 1949 and 1967. And you can see that Egypt held the whole of the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. Jordan held the West Bank, which included half of Jerusalem. And as always, Israel was virtually surrounded by its enemies. In May 1967, and no, I'm not old enough to remember this, uh, Egypt expelled UN peacekeepers from the Sinai Peninsula and they announced that they were going to blockade and cut off some of Israel's shipping access to the Red Sea, which was pretty important to them. Uh, Egypt then began to pour its troops into the Sinai and it amassed them along the Israeli border, threatening hostilities. Now remember, Israel were, were totally surrounded by their enemies. Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon. Two and three deep in places if you went out as far as Iran, Iraq, Pakistan. The whole thing was just like a powder keg, just waiting for a spark to set it off. And the whole of the Middle East would just erupt. Well, Israel decided it, it would be best for them if they didn't wait for that spark. And so on the 5th of June, 1967, Israel made a preemptive strike into Sinai and Egypt. In one day, they totally decimated the Egyptian air force. Jordan and Syria then attacked Israel, but of course Israel was ready for this too. And, and sometimes wars go on for years. But in six days, six days, Israel had them all on the run. And so Israel now held the whole of the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, what is known as the West Bank and the Golan Heights. And what has become known as the Six-Day War enabled Israel to occupy territories which had previously been held by their enemies and enabled their enemies to launch guerrilla attacks into Israel. It was an overwhelming display of their military superiority. But if it was so successful, if they were able to achieve all of that in just six days, which I just find incredible, why, almost 50 years later, is the Israeli-Arab conflict an ongoing event? Why are places like those new territories that they, that they got hold of the Gaza, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, why do we continuously hear of these places in the news? Why almost every day are there bombings and shootings and stabbings and rocket launches and suicide bombings in Israel? Why does it just go on and on and on? Well, it's because these lands are shared by two different peoples. The whole of Israel is disputed territory that the Arab and the Persian nations would, would like to see totally disappear and become all Arab again. But even within Israel itself lives the Israeli and the Arab-Palestinian. Israelis' enemies live within them. And we can only imagine what that must be like for Israel, uh, to, to live with the constant threat of an enemy bent on their destruction living inside of them. It's a nation that can really never have peace. 
There's two different peoples, two different cultures, two different beliefs, two different allegiances, two different gods. A nation where its sworn enemies live within. And until Jesus returns, Israel will always battle with not only external attacks, but attacks from the inside. And mind you, they have brought a fair bit upon themselves too, right from the time when they went into the promised land and didn't get rid of all the people like God had told them to. But today's lesson isn't about geopolitical and international conflict. Today's lesson is much, much closer to home. It's about the spiritual war, the spiritual conflict that takes place inside of us. It's about the daily battle which rages inside those of us who are of two minds. Now, when I say, you know, those of us who are of two minds, I don't mean that, oh, I'm a bit undecided about this. When I say two minds, what the Bible's talking about is, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, but I want to be a worldly Christian. That's what it means to be double-minded. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And then he goes on to describe the combatants in this war. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So there's the two opposing forces, the world and God. Worldliness and godliness, Satan and God. You see, in this world, in our lives, everywhere around us, there are two different peoples, there are two different cultures, there are two different allegiances, there are two different gods. There are those who are in Christ and those who are in the world. And many of us want to have a foot in both camps. I want to live with the benefits of being saved. I want to be saved and I want to go to heaven and, yeah, I want to love Jesus. But I also want to hold on to a fair bit of what the world has to offer because, let's face it, a fair bit of what the world has to offer, well, that's pretty appealing to the, to the fleshly nature, isn't it? There's stuff that I shouldn't be involved in that, that the world is always coaxing me to be involved in these things. And so the battle, the fight, goes on and on and on inside of me. And inside of you. And James is saying this cannot be. He's saying friendship with the world is enmity with God. And if I go and get friendly with the ways of the world, I make myself an enemy. And who is that enemy? God. It's that simple. Yeah, you know, it's really hard these days to talk about this in truly biblical terms because of today's expectation of modern political correctness. See, the Bible uses terms such as war, battle, putting to death, now, none of which are politically correct terms. And in a war, for a war to be successful and to have an outcome of lasting peace, lasting victorious peace, there must be a decided victor, a definite winner and a definite loser. 
the victor, the winner must rule victorious and the vanquished is expelled or become subjugated, totally submitted to the victor. But of course, with today's political correctness, we, we don't like having winners and losers. We, we sort of prefer to live and let live. But if the victor in a war has the attitude of live and let live, the vanquished, the loser, will continue to have the desire and the presence and the ability to get back up again and to be ruler again. That, that, that They will continue to have the desire to regain control and the desire to come back once again as master and lord of that realm. And that's the way it is with us. If we try to let the old worldly nature coexist with the new spiritual nature, there will be a constant ongoing war within ourselves. And so biblical language around what it means to be disciples of Jesus, totally submitted to him, is, is very politically incorrect. It's a language about putting to death. It's a language about winning a war. It's language about friends and enemies. You see, to convert to Christianity is such a radical shift of allegiance. It, it's such a radical transference of headship and lordship and rulership in, in our lives that no other language could ever be strong enough to describe what is really happening. The kingdom of darkness once used to rule in you. The kingdom of darkness once used to control you. But Jesus Christ has won a tremendous victory over the kingdom of darkness. And he's won a victory in us. He has liberated us. He has set us free from that old regime. Following World War II, the Nuremberg trials were held. Nazi war criminals were put on trial, convicted and executed. And this only happened because the Allies won. If Nazi Germany and the Axis of Germany, Italy and Japan had won the Second World War instead of the Allies, well, the war criminals wouldn't have been criminals. They wouldn't have been hung. They would have been heroes. They would have been celebrities. They probably would have had political clout. But the fact that the Allies did win meant that the Nazis were tried convicted and put to death. And the fact that Jesus Christ has won a victory in us, the fact that Jesus is ruler of our lives and the world isn't ruling us anymore, this means that in our lives, the ways of the world must be put to death. When Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetous, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another, 
Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All right? We have to put to death what is earthly in us. That means getting rid of it once and for all. I don't want to have any part of these things anymore. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. See, because Jesus Christ has won this amazing victory in our lives, because now Jesus is the the new ruler, our Lord, well, all the leftovers of the old administration, our old master, our old worldly ways need to be expelled, put to death. And we must become totally submitted to the new Lord to the new master, to the new ruler. Now, we're going to cover this a bit more in detail, more detail next week, but some of the symptoms of this double-mindedness, this trying to have a foot in both camps of, of worldliness and godliness, well, a few of the symptoms are broken relationships, a broken prayer life, unfulfilled desires, pride, greed, a constant quest for self-gratification. All of these things are symptoms of worldly desires that that, that we haven't been able to get rid of, that we haven't been able to purge out of ourselves. Our God is a jealous God. Now, some people go, oh, jealousy isn't a good thing. You know what? There is a good time for there to be a jealousy. Let's, it's Valentine's Day. Let's talk about husbands and wives. I am very jealous for my wife. If another man was making eyes at her, I would be very jealous. And that's right for me to be jealous. Because she's my wife. And our God is a jealous God. He didn't win the war so that Satan could continue to rule our lives. Verse 4 says, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, that's a scary thought. I don't want to be an enemy of God. Do you want to be an enemy of God? If you're an enemy of God, guess who loses? Us. But don't we do exactly that in so many ways? Compromises we make so that we can be more world-friendly. Some churches have changed the definition of marriage. Um, What the Bible says is sin, we sometimes say is no longer sin. It could be the quest that we have for more and more possessions. Sometimes there's little or no difference between the morals of the world and the morals of those who claim to be Christians. Sometimes those who claim to be Christians are so full of themselves that that we say whatever we like, no matter what it does to others. Our God is a jealous God. He He is exceedingly jealous for us. You know, if the church is the bride of Christ, 
which it is, for us to give ourselves over to Satan and and over to worldly ways. No wonder James says, you adulterous people. That's what it means for God to be a jealous God. If we give ourselves over to another, if we give ourselves over to the world, that's adultery against God. Now that's harsh language. You belong to Christ, but you're giving yourself to the world. I don't want to be an enemy of God. But when I think about it, my love for God and my submission to him is like that jigsaw puzzle the kids did before. It's not complete. I've been proud. But God opposes the proud. In our pride, we claim Christ as saviour and proclaim him as Lord. But we haven't fully submitted ourselves to him as Lord. You know, right throughout James, the main thrust is is about this non-passivity in faith. It's about connecting what we believe with what we do. And now we've gotten to the spiritual cause of it, double-mindedness. It's allowing the world to control what Christ has conquered. What do we do? Is there anybody not stuck in this? I'm stuck in it. Is there anyone not stuck in it? Where we allow the world to control what Christ has conquered. What do we do? Well, yep, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. My friends, that's a very different message to what you'll hear in most churches today. When's the last time you heard your worship leader get get up and say, come on everybody, let's be wretched and mourn and weep? Has it ever happened? When's the last time your preacher said, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom? We try to generate an atmosphere of happiness and clapping and excitement and and feelings of joy because this is what we all love and we want to go out of here feeling lifted up and wonderful. But you know what? There comes a time when we have to push that aside, when the reality hits home that I have not yet made the Lord completely my Lord. Somebody once said he's not Lord at all until he is Lord of all. Because that's what Lordship means. To make Jesus Lord means we have to be totally submitted to him in all things, in all areas of our lives. And when I realise that, hey, I haven't done this, I haven't been living my life for Jesus, I've actually been living it more for me, 
When I realise that I've just been Christianising a pretty standard worldly life, when I realise the pull that the world still has on me and the way that my sinful nature is, is what I seek to please more than seeking to please God, that's a time for mourning. It's time for sadness. It's a time to humble ourselves. It's time to let go of pride and to humble ourselves before God. It's a time to burst in tears before the Lord and weep, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been double-minded. It's a time for repentance. It's a time to resist the devil because he's the one who keeps drawing us into this worldliness. And it's a time to draw near to God. And when we do this, when we humble ourselves, we don't stay down groveling in the dust as the dust wets up with our tears and turns to mud. Because when we humble ourselves, the Lord lifts us up. He comes to us and he stretches his hand. He says, you've humbled yourself before me. That's all I've wanted. And he lifts us up. Next week, we're going to continue with this message because it's got a lot more to say to us yet about, about prayer and about our relationships with others in the church. But today, I just wanted us to understand this 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 war, this battle that goes in, in, on inside of us. Two different peoples, two different beliefs, two different cultures, two different allegiances, two different gods. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Lord, when we consider the way, the way the world still bears so much influence in our lives, it is to our shame that we've gotten so used to it that we just think of it as normal. We just think of it as, well, that's just the normal Christian life. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, I praise you for this battle that you have fought 
The battle that Christ fought for us on the cross as he died for us to take our sins away, as he died to conquer the kingdom of darkness. And Lord, I want to thank you that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven and to make it a reality in the lives of us even now who believe in him. And Lord, thank you. We praise you. But Lord, we confess to you that we've continued to let the enemy live within and has made us at times such so ineffective in our Christian walk, so ineffective in our Christian witness. When people see us, sometimes we're just not that different to those who are not in Christ. God, forgive us. Lord, we humble ourselves. Lord, root out the pride that is in us. The pride that causes us to say, I'm holding on to that. Lord, I'm thinking of the parables that you've told and about how every good branch you you prune it so it'll be better. You've said that you cut off the bad branches. Lord, we can understand this. And Lord, we don't just give you permission we to do this in our lives. Lord, we we long for you to do it. We long for you to prune our hearts, cut out everything that's bad. Every part of our hearts, Lord, that's worldly, just take it away. Lord, I pray for a keen sense of your hand stretching out to us as we humble ourselves, Lord, that you would lift us up. That as we fill our hearts with sadness and mourning for what we've been, that, that Lord, in your mercy, that as you take our sin away, that you would fill our hearts again with joy. Lord, don't let us stay in that sadness. Help us to just experience the wonder of your total victory in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.